Yeah, hi. What's to be done for our dentistry? Pubs in even more trouble. We'll discuss with the landlord what his energy bill has risen to and whether he can stay afloat. And joining me on Talking Pints, pollster and peer, Lord Robert Hayward. I'll ask him what advice would he give to an incoming Prime Minister? Evening. Well, of course, we've just had the first Notting Hill Carnival for three years because the pandemic stopped it. And the Mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, seems to think things have gone absolutely swimmingly. This is what the Mayor of London put out on Twitter. He said it's the biggest street party in Europe and the vibes are immaculate. Hmm. Is that right? Well, let's have a look, shall we, at the scores on the doors. Let's have a look at how many crimes were committed over the course of this weekend. Um, well, only 36 people were, addressed, were arrested for possession of drugs, though looking at the evidence on the streets, you could easily have added a couple of noughts to that. Uh, 46 people done for assault, 8 done for sexual assault, 209 arrests in total, 74 met police officers injured, seven people stabbed, and one of them, a 21-year-old, fatally. And let me show you some of the footage, some of the scenes. And by the way, we can't show you, we really cannot and will not show you the most graphic scenes that were sent into us. But have a look at some of these scenes, what was happening on the streets of Notting Hill. Not just yesterday, it was also happening on Sunday evening as well. And what you see are brawls going on in the streets. You know, open brawls going on. Uh, these are men, women, punching each other. Um, it looks to be, frankly, pretty lawless. And this isn't just one isolated incident. After dark, I've seen more than a dozen different videos from different parts of the Notting Hill Carnival. It looks like a complete and utter breakdown of law and order. So I'm asking the question, of you, the audience at home, is this London today? Tell me what you think, farage at gbnews.uk, because I fear that in many ways it is. I think what has happened in our city in large parts of it is community has broken down. We don't know our neighbours. In many cases, we may not even share their language or have similar interests or cultures. And when people live together in a community, yes, of course, there'll always be the bad apples, but communities help each other, support each other. Feels to me in London, our communities have gone, and in situations like that, we simply become selfish and we turn a blind eye to bad things that go on. I fear that crime has reached a level where in many cases now we simply don't even bother to report it because we feel the police won't come. All they'll do is give us an insurance number. So I'm worried about the state that London's in. And by the way, it isn't just London. We can make this argument too in Birmingham, in Liverpool, in many other parts of the country. But Sadiq Khan, I have to say, your comments were as wide of the mark, in my opinion, as they possibly could be. So what are we to think? Well, Stephen Roberts is a former Deputy Assistant Commissioner of the Met. We've seen problems before at the Notting Hill Carnival, and we see problems wherever there are very large crowds of people. Mm. But I, I sort of kind of think, had this been a Millwall football match, we would now be seeing headlines of disgusting, disgraceful behaviour. Are we soft-pedalling on what happened at Notting Hill for cultural reasons? 
I'm not sure that we're soft peddling for cultural reasons, but I think what's what's not being discussed is the fact that carnival takes place in the wrong place in Notting Hill. Mm. It takes place in a very dangerous place. It's a tragedy, of course it's a tragedy that somebody was stabbed to death. Mm. But the great fear, and it has been a great fear of, of the Metropolitan Police for several decades now, is that one day there will be a crush event. Well, one let me day show we'll you, have Stephen, a crowd. Let me, let me stop you for a moment and just show you these scenes of a huge crowd of people in a very, very narrow street. Uh, and there are police officers, and this has been filmed through a window, but just look at that crowd, and it's sort of, it's completely out of control. It's moving of itself. There are police caught up in it. You can see about a dozen police there in the foreground, people being pressed up against the railings. This, Stephen Roberts, is what, is, is what you're talking about, isn't it? That illustrates precisely what I'm talking about. That, that level of crowd packing, you really can't control. Uh, the officers there are doing their best mm. uh, to try and relieve the crowd pressure. But they can't. But they can't. If somebody falls over in that crowd, they're not likely to get up again. It, it's a tragedy that one person was killed, but we're, potentially we're looking at a situation where literally hundreds could be killed if you have a panic in a crowd. That starts to feed on itself. People fall, children fall, a nobody can pick them up. A Hillsborough-type situation. A Hillsborough, or, or indeed what happens not too frequently in Mecca where you have huge, yeah. uncontrolled yeah. crowds. Yeah. It's a very dangerous right. so situation. So the carnival's held in the wrong place? Yes. Where do, where do we put it? Over the years, there have been suggestions it could take place in Hyde Park. Hyde Park is a nice open area where you actually could parade around the streets where the bands, where the mm. dancers could do exactly the same sort of things. There would have to be some changes to the regulations. There would have to be some changes to the law. But changing law and regulations is a, is a far better route than right. waiting for a tragedy. As for the sort of general level of street crime and drug use that was very clearly going mm. on on a massive scale, is this part of the gang-related drug culture that we read and hear so much about? It's certainly part of it. It, it is an event which is overwhelmingly enjoyed by anything up to a couple of million people. Most people go to Carnival, have a great time, mm. want to have a great time and go away very happy indeed. Unfortunately, it also attracts a lot of young men, a lot of them parts of gangs, who are crushed together uh, and rivalries boil over into violence. And that, that's inevitable. And there is really very little that a police force can do to control that. Uh, you've just shown uh, the sort of crush there, yeah. all those officers can do is try and relieve crowd pressure. They can't enforce the law. And is it inevitable, then, that young men who are in gangs turn up to the Donnickill Carnival and that carrying a knife is now de rigueur? Sadly, it is. And what we've still got to get over to these kids is that carrying a knife puts them at risk. That so many of them believe that if they carry a knife, it allows them to protect themselves. The sad reality is it puts them at greater danger. And the big question, Notting Hill Carnival, I'm arguing that what you see there is a sample of what is going on more broadly across London. There is, is there not, a breakdown in law and order? I think the police service, like many other public services... I'm not is, blaming the police, I'm just asking uh, a, gen a general comment. Uh, the police ha service has to take its share of the blame. But what's happened with a lot of public services, I think, over lockdown, over the pandemic, is that they... 
the services have been dislocated, if you like, and they're still recovering, just as the health service is still recovering, mm. just as the economy is still recovering. And it's happening at a time when people are fearful because of inflation, they're fearful because of price rises, energy rises. There's, there's a real public mood, it's not mood, just policing, is it? There's a societal change here. Oh, there is a societal change here. I think the, the pandemic has done more damage to society and to people's mentality uh, and, and outlook uh, than we ever realised was possible. Stephen Roberts, thank you for what you had to say. Well, there we are. Policing problems, societal breakdown. But what was really interesting, I thought, there was Stephen Roberts making the point that a lot of what spilled over onto those streets was as a result of gang culture and gangs who can be involved in the drugs trade where there's lots of money involved and it seems carrying knives more and more and more. Is there anything that can be done? Well, Tracy Miller is a former gang member, now a youth worker. Uh, Tracy, you know, Stephen Roberts, former senior policeman, he makes the point that huge numbers go to the carnival and lots have a great time. Yeah. But that sheer number of serious assaults, knifings, sexual assaults even, that took place over the last 48 hours, it's pretty shocking, really, isn't it? It is, and I can't defend that. I can't defend... No, I wouldn't ask you to. I can't defend that, and I wouldn't try to. Um, it is quite sad to look at, and the fact that society you already look at young black people as people that do wrong and, they, you know, they, they don't aspire to anything. That just helps fuel that thought. So let's not forget there are a lot of young black people who do a lot. They are going to university, they are studying, they are keeping themselves away from that gang life, as you call it. But yeah. at the same time, going to carnival, I guess, you can get intoxicated. There is rum punch available. There's different drinks, vodka even, that they might drink beforehand. You get in the moment, you're a bit intoxicated. Maybe some are yeah. smoking weed. I'm not defending it, but I don't think, there's other I mean, reasons as to why. The Notting Hill Carnival, clearly a huge number of black people attend. But the yeah, general, but generally gang culture is not just confined to the black community. We've got Albanian gangs running the vice trade, running much of the uh, drug trade. So gangs are not confined to the black community, and it would be a mistake to think but so. But it's not just gang-based. Two youngsters can have an altercation, and they're not from gangs. They're just different youths that see things differently, and they don't agree, and they get caught up in an argument, and the altercation ends in a bad way. What I will say, though, is young people shouldn't carry knives, and they shouldn't carry guns, because obviously if you use it, or if you carry it, you're bound to use it. But the Notting Hill Carnival has been going for years, and it's designed to be a celebration. Exactly. A celebration, an injection into London of a different Caribbean, mostly, culture. Celebrating the Notting Hill Carnival is about the music and the joy and all the rest of it. Is it now doing more harm than good? No, it's still got that element of joy. Um, let's not take that away from the, the carnival goers that are there enjoying their time and making it good for everyone else. It's just that small amount of people that are making it um, look bad. And the thing is, even for young people, for anyone um, watching this now, you're effectively, when you're stabbing each other and killing each other, you're wiping out your own young generation. Mm. And our ancestors didn't go through what they went through for us to be doing this now to each other. Stephen Roberts made the point, and we showed some video there, of a mass crowd in a street and clearly nobody in control themselves. They're being pushed back and forth by this mass of people trapped into what is a Victorian street, basically. He made the point, why not do this in Hyde Park, where there's loads of space, there could be stages for music, there could be you know, plenty of room. 
is it time to think about moving away from Notting Hill? Because isn't the danger that we sit here next year and we talk not just about gang problems and violence and people being drunk on the street or whatever it is, but a crush and, and goodness knows how many die? I think it's a mentality. What's Hyde Park going to change? If you're saying there's more space, isn't there more space to brawl then, if that's, if that's what you're saying? Well, there might be more space to brawl, but, the, but you wouldn't necessarily get that big risk we're talking about but of why? crowd crushes. What's crushers. the difference between Hyde Park and Notting Hill? Notting Hill Park is an affluent is... area, let's not forget. Yeah, I think it's to do with, with its sheer geography of the streets. But So overall, did you go to Carnival? I do not go to the Carnival. I have been in the past, yeah. but I don't go. Why is that? So for me personally, um, I think the, um, he mentioned it. If, there, if something did kick off and a crowd is going a certain way, you, it's like a stampede, isn't it? So I prefer to... Prevention is better than cure. I personally don't want to get caught up in a brawl because yeah. there are young people that have no respect for their elders. I'm, I look younger than I am, so... I don't want to get caught up with anything like that. And, you know, that's just how I prefer to stay no, safe. Well, I, I fully understand it, but there are lots that do go, and I don't think the last couple of days have been particularly good for London. And just finally, my, my, my broader point, yeah. the Notting Hill Carnival, you know, is London becoming more lawless? Is London becoming more dangerous? The youngsters are growing up with a different mentality now. London's always been like this. It's just that now the youngsters, they don't have any fear. So the police do do their bit, they do try, but when you've got fearless young people, mm. that's not going to scare them. That's not going to make them deter. That, Tracy Miller, is a very powerful point, and I thank you for it. Yes, fearless youngsters who do not respect the law and don't respect anything, and they are becoming a real, real problem. In a moment, we will give you a GB News exclusive about the state of dentistry and the level of mouth deaths in this country. What is to be done with dentistry? Well, I asked you the question, you know, is this London today, the number of arrests and assaults and stabbings that we saw in Notting Hill in the last 48 hours? Your response is, Hadrian says, today, tomorrow, and for the foreseeable future. Another says, sadly, it seems so. Harry says, surely, that's just an average night in London. Another viewer says... Another day in Cairns, London. Well, we can't lay all the blame for law and order and deterioration on the mayor, Sadiq Khan, but we can say he is hopelessly out of touch with reality. And that tweet that I showed you earlier on, where he said the vibes are immaculate, is very different from what was experienced by thousands of people who went to the Notting Hill Carnival. Now, a couple of months ago, I did a segment on this show about dentistry, because it seems to me, with all the debate we're having about the National Health Service, about the number of people with positive cancer diagnoses not being treated, the Cinderella of health always seems to be dentistry, at least it does in this country. We put some FOIs in to the Department of Health and Social Care to ask what was actually happening in terms of serious ill health coming through tooth, gum and mouth disease. And the figures we've got back are pretty appalling. They show that oral deaths are now at a five-year high. Now, the department says we are improving access to dental care 
for all NHS patients, backed by more than three billion in funding each year and an extra 50 million last year. And it's the usual government response. Whenever you find a figure uh, that, 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 that really is rather unpalatable and you ask the government, they always tell you how wonderfully they're doing it. It's all going to be absolutely fine by next Thursday, but it's not. Well, one of the people a couple of months ago that we worked with to try and assess how big the problem was, how bad the access to NHS dentistry was for those that can't afford to go privately, and goodness me, private dental care is expensive, was Mark Jones, co-founder of the campaign group Toothless. And we spoke to you a couple of months ago. Do these figures surprise you, shock you? They are shocking, absolutely. And I think you're... Uh, listeners and your viewers tonight will be equally shocked, if not more so, because that's their lived experience. And I think uh, what, we're sh what we're seeing here, and there's further evidence, uh, another report, your report, GB News, at the front of this, it just shows that dentistry is in the final, NHS dentistry is in the final death throes. Quite literally. So what is happening? I mean, what, you know, let's just sort of take an example, Mark, of a family out there. They're trying to get onto the NHS dentist list. And, and are you saying they simply can't? They simply can't. 90%, uh, a recent, another study uh, just a few weeks ago, 90% of the NHS practices surveyed uh, were turning away. They're not taking on any Absolutely. new NHS patients. Absolutely. Turning so, away families, yeah. turning away children. And uh, we're seeing them now pushed into already overstretched accident and emergency departments in hospital because they just cannot get to see a dentist. And you said to us last time you spoke to us, when we first sort of started to highlight this story, that people are pulling out their own teeth, doing, I mean, doing all sorts of things. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's Dickensian, as I think I've mentioned yeah, to you did. before, it's Dickensian. Uh, going into the garage to get a pair of pliers yeah. off the tool rack and, and, and drinking a half a bottle of scotch to numb the pain before you, you know, pull your, pull your own and teeth this really out. is going This on. is happening. Every single street stall that we uh, operate, and there was one today in Southampton, one of our newest groups, Toothless in Southampton, uh, they're all experiencing people coming up to them and saying exactly the same. The problem is widespread, it is across the country, and unless government ministers, and we've had seven since 2008, since this new contract system, seven since 2008 when they deemed the contract to be unfit for purpose, seven health ministers, three of which come from my own part of the east of England, yep. have just kicked it into the long grass. And enough's enough. And we've really got to get some action on this. And Government and, ministers and, and at have been a serious aware. end. I mean, the, the reason for the increase in deaths, I suppose, is chiefly undetected mouth cancers. Well, there will be elements of that. And of course, infections as well. When people are uh, self-treating, self-extracting, have they got the wherewithal to understand what so risk, infections risks, you could have? The risk of sepsis and all sorts absolutely. of things. Absolutely. So this is awful. Well, I have to say, Mark, you know, we are very much behind your campaign to raise awareness on this issue above all, and we're doing our best to do so. And thank you for coming in to the studio. So what is to be done? 
what is the medical profession going to do? What can the medical profession do? What can government do? Is it, as the department says, simply about pumping more money in? Or is there something structurally far more fundamentally wrong? Well, joining me is the head of indemnity at the British Dental Association, Len de Cruz. Len, these figures uh, that we've got from the department, from the FOI, the, I have to say, a pretty pathetic response, I think, at least, that we've got. It's the usual guff, isn't it? We're putting more money in, it's all going to be fine. You know, Mark, clearly, very passionate with the campaign, uh, and I think a very good campaign, to raise awareness of this, if I dare say to you, Cinderella. Of, is, I mean, is that a fair description? Yes, it is. I mean, I think the, uh, we have a contract uh, fundamentally that started back in 2006. It's a fundamentally flawed contract. And government after government, prime minister after prime minister, just have been sitting idly watching this uh, dwindle on the vine. Uh, and Mark is absolutely right. Uh, but it, this, this predated COVID. People blame COVID for a lot of things. Uh, this predates COVID. It was happening uh, anyway. It, it was happening anyway. Yeah. Um, it's been underfunded. Structurally, the whole, the whole system is fundamentally flawed. If I explain how the system works, if I see a patient and I do a filling on them, I may get a certain, a certain amount of fee on the NHS. If I do five fillings, three extractions and ten root canal treatments on that same patient, I get paid exactly the same. Okay, so that's completely bizarre. And that system has been running since 2006. Uh, it's not surprising that uh, dentists are leaving in their droves. We've lost 3,000 dentists yeah. uh, in the last couple of years. I think this was, you know, when we first d delved into this a couple of months ago, this was the one thing that I hadn't fully understood, was that thousands of people are leaving NHS dentistry, which partly explains why nobody can get onto a list. What would your advice be? I mean, let's take a, I don't know, um, I don't know, um, a family of four, couple of couple of young kids, and they apply to every dental surgery in the area, and every single one says, we are not taking on any more NHS patients. What do they do? It's distressing. There is no answer. There is no answer. The answer falls with the government. So the, the two things that the government needs to do, the first thing they need to do is change the system. Uh, we have a, an activity-based system where targets are based on the back of dentists to hit targets. Uh, Healthcare and targets just don't work. It's, it doesn't make sense. Uh, this second, was Tony Blair's big idea. It, it was, absolutely. But uh, successive governments have continued to play to do exactly the same thing. Been watching. I've been in a pilot for the last 10 years, looking at the way we can change dentistry based on prevention. We are dealing with two preventable diseases gum disease and tooth decay. Very preventable, uh, and we should be investing our money in preventing disease, not treating it. So we spent, we've spent decades. Uh, uh, giving, page, giving dentists money to treat, uh, to treat uh, patients with, with disease. We don't need to do that. We need to prevent that disease. That's the first thing we need to do is change is, the system. And is that education to a large extent? It is educa it's education. Regular checkups, uh, education. Absolutely. So the, the issue about uh, people who are dying because of all cancer yeah. is because they possibly they don't come to see the dentist, so they need to be coming to the dentist. Now, we have a problem if they, if they can't see the dentist in the first mm. place because of access. But if they, if they see the dentist more regularly, you need to pick up those things early on. Uh, and because of COVID, of what's happened is people have gone to see the dentist, they've gone to the GP, they've just turned up in A&E. That's why they've yeah. been flooded. That's why yeah. there's an increase in numbers in, the, in, in tertiary care. Is this one of those cases, Len, where we should be thinking, OK, we've got a problem here, and you say the system was, was badly designed yeah. back in 2006, but there are lots and lots of dentists out there quite happy to work privately. Is this a situation where we should be encouraging people
through tax relief or whatever it is, to go and get private dental care? No, I, I mean, I think the, there are plenty of people who can't afford private dentistry at all. Uh, and we're not doing them any service at all to actually try and encourage them to go private unless they have insurance schemes like Australia mm. and America. Mm. It's not going to work, basically. We have to... We live in the 21st century in a very rich country. We should have a very good NHS service. It's appalling that the NHS uh, is the way it is. And it's because uh, year after year, dent, uh, governments have just ignored the whole thing. It is, a, as you say, it's a Cinderella. And what, we, what the government has done recently uh, is they've made some marginal changes. It's essentially just cha- moving the deck chairs on the Titanic. It's a complete waste of time. There needs to be more, more activity from the government. Final thought from you. you know, given just how important you know, teeth, gums are, and we're talking not just about oral cancers, but possibly various heart diseases, yeah. all sorts of problems yeah. that can come from this. Why is it so low profile? I've no idea. It's you have to ask the treasury. You have to ask Rishi Sunak. Both Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss have, have got a very low. Uh, they haven't even got uh, NHS dentists in their constituencies. They have. They should have the answers. One of those two people is going to be the next prime minister. They need to sit down with the chancellor and treasury and sort this out. Linda Cruz, thank you. And I can tell you, we're going to be pushing this and pushing this and pushing this. There's not enough talked about. There's not enough campaigning on this issue, in my view. Thank you very thank much you. indeed for coming in. Now, one of the most distressing pieces of news to me today was that the local boozer is in trouble. Now, we've seen far too many pubs close over the course of the last few years, in my view, and of course all of you as viewers and listeners will know that I like the pub. I believe every pub is a parliament. It's where we go to have conversations. It's where we go when people turn our minds and say, oh, have you looked at it like this? It's heart of the community, and certainly for much of smaller town and rural England, I mean, it really is just about the only place people in those communities can actually go and meet. They've had a very, very tough time over the last few years. For many, uh, they've seen prices charged by their own breweries for rents go through the roof. We've seen major supermarket chains selling alcohol at sometimes actually cheaper than they're actually producing it. One would argue that the smoking ban hasn't helped many pubs either. So many things that have happened to pubs in the last 15 years. But this could be the big one, and it's energy. And Simon Cleary is landlord of the plough in Great Chesterford, Essex. Simon, thanks for coming in. That's fine, Nigel. I care about the pub. and It's a bit of a joke with me, but it's not. It actually does matter, doesn't it? It does. Uh, They are the heart of many communities, um, particularly, as you said, in villages. Um, It's where the community meet. Certainly our pub, it's used for lots of different things. The Women's Institute have their meetings there. We have a pigeon club. Um, And people just generally get together. And certainly uh, when you have single older people, um, they'll come and have lunch together in the pub. It gives them an opportunity to meet up. So all the other problems that I've talked about, and we've argued over the years, yes. but there are still 40,000-odd 40, licensed premises around the country. Tell me about your energy bills. Our energy bills in our pub alone um, on the 9th of October are going to be increasing from £13,000 a year to £35,000 a year. And what was it a year ago? The 13,000 is the average of what it's been pretty much right. for the last five so years. So thirteen to 35000 Yeah. And there's no way you can make that up from extra custom. I don't think so. With the cost th- of living crisis. I think the problem could be twofold. We've got costs rising at the bottom end. And then if the cost of living crisis really hits home to people, we may see less customers and we're going to be squeezed at both ends of the market. So you're a tenant yep. for one of the big brewers. Yes. Other pubs are where the brewer themselves put their own manager yep. in. So I guess for you, 
this is a big worry about your livelihood and, what, huge. and what you're going to do. Yep. I'm guessing for the brewery, they're wondering what the hell do we do with how many pubs have they got? Well, we're part of Green King. Yep. Uh, they have about 2,000. Good East Anglian brewer. Yeah. Yep. 2,000 they run themselves, I yes. think, roughly. Yes. Uh, 1,000 are tenanted out and leased out. Um, I think they're worried about their whole estate. Um, the CEO has opened, written an open letter along with the other brewers to the, the government today. Um, and everybody is really concerned. And I don't think it's too far to say that without some sort of help, unless we can get a, a, a cap on business energy or some help from the government, I think this winter could be catastrophic for our trade. I really do. And you've just been through the pandemic. That which, wasn't very which good the Republicans either. not been very funny. No, but I think this is worse, Nigel. I think this is worse than this the pandemic. Worse than the pandemic. This, is, this is worse than being closed. Well, when we were closed, very quickly, the government yep. came out and offered some support yep. uh, in the form of grants yes. and a reduced rate of VAT, uh, which helped to get us through that. But at the moment, of course, the government are saying nothing. You could argue at the moment we don't have a government. Um, some will argue that's been the case for some time. But that, yeah. that could be a point. But certainly there's, there's nothing coming out of government at the moment. Uh, we need to see who gets in on Monday, yeah. and whoever that is, they need to do something for small businesses. And this is not just about pubs. No. Fish and chip shops, um, local uh, pottery people that make pots that use a lot of gas to, to run their furnaces. Every small business in this country is going to suffer this winter, but I think pubs are going to have it particularly bad. So the government needs to find yet more money. Or maybe the government can roll some dice and put the cap on the energy that businesses pay in the same way that domestic bills are paid. I don't understand the economics of it. You probably do better than me, Nigel. But if the government can at least cap what we're paying... And if they don't? <sighs> carnage. And I'm not overstating that. I think it will be carnage this winter. Yeah. Simon Cleary. Thank you. Good luck with it all. Thank you very much, Nigel. We've got to keep the British pub, for goodness sake. Without that, I mean, all hope will be yeah, gone. Of course. <laughs> now, talking about all hope being gone, by what the Farage moment concerns the royal family and, of course, Meghan Markle. Remember, she moved off to the west coast of America because she wanted a quieter life. Quite why, then, in that regard, she goes on doing major interviews, I just don't know. The latest one, a 6,400-word piece with an American magazine based in New York. And one of the revelations is that she met a South African man who told her that they danced in the streets and rejoiced when Meghan married into the royal family, just as they did when Nelson Mandela was released from prison. I don't think we've ever come across anybody in any walk of life, let alone the royal family, with such an over-inflated sense of her own worth and self-importance as Meghan Markle. And it's pretty clear from this interview she doesn't intend to stop talking. So much of what she says is completely and utterly untrue. The damage she and her husband are doing to the Queen and to the royal family is absolutely incalculable. I do think, not just here, but in America too, people are beginning to wake up. These two, these two self-obsessed hypocrites, liars, are in the end going to be ignored by everybody. At least I hope and pray so. Some more thoughts from you on Notting Hill and London with crime more generally. One viewer says there will be, a cr there will be crime in a city of millions. Yes, I agree there will be crime in a city of millions. The question is, at what level is it? Stuart says, unfortunately, yes, 
always been trouble since it started. The Notting Hill Carnival has always attracted a lot of criticism, but I do think some of those scenes that we're seeing this year are pretty shocking, pretty appalling. And Graham says, this is today's UK, a broken, lawless society with an underfunded police force trying to enforce our outdated laws. Graham, I think this broken Britain, this lawlessness, it's something increasingly being felt by large numbers of people. Now, in a moment, it'll be time for Talking Pints. I'll be joined by pollster, peer, rugby enthusiast, Lord Robert Hayward. Well, it is my favourite time of the day. It's Talking Pints, although after the last interview, I'm worried what's going to happen to pubs in the future. But I'm joined today by somebody who in the past, of course, was chief executive of the Beer and Pub Association. It's Lord <laughs> Robert Hayward. So I can't good think evening. in many ways of a more appropriate guest to have on Talking Pints. Very, very good to see you and thank you. The, um, Robert, a really long political life. Yeah, you've been not involved. too long, please. Well, no, no, I wasn't being nasty about it. But, you know, you've gone from being a senior figure in the Young Conservatives nationally to being a member of Parliament, to being involved in all sorts of campaign lobby groups, uh, member of the House of Lords, pollster, and we'll talk about all of that. And, and, and this is the sort of the very public side of Lord Hayward that people know and people see. Yep. But really, really, it's rugby, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. I got my <laughs> King's Cross Steelers tie on. Um, just come back from Ottawa where we won for the first time ever the worldwide gay rugby tournament. Now, why gay rugby? I don't get it. Um, what happened was that you go back to the mid-1990s and society was freeing up and people wanted to feel comfortable in their own communities. And uh, there was a, a fair element of antipathy towards not just gay people, but people of colour and all sorts of other things. So we decided to form our own club. But we play in leagues, and it's been in normal leagues. And Essex, not the county that one would automatically assume no. as being the Liberal, <laughs> but they, they've been wonderful to us. Um, we've now got four teams. We took four teams to Ottawa. Uh, uh, we, could, we fielded six in Dublin a few years ago. So very successful club. And started with the intention of playing rugby, but what we've discovered is that we also are a support mechanism for people who have difficulty coping with being gay. Okay. Um, okay. So and therefore, a, it's a combination. So it's a social dimension to it's what a, you do. It has a social as well. dimension as well. But you're also, of course, a qualified referee. I was. I'm no, beyond well, it. Well, okay. Now, but... <laughs> okay. Well, you said it, not me. You know. But you know, you were doing some proper rugby refereeing. Yeah, and I adored it throughout my time as an, a member of parliament. Yep. Uh, every Saturday afternoon during the season, I refereed, which in Bristol, where I was the MP, was relatively easy because every boy in Bristol in those days played both football and rugby. Yeah. And therefore, I'd refereed the sons, the uncles, the fathers, the husbands. So or as a local MP, that would seem to be a good thing to it do. Was, it was a great thing yeah. to, to do. Um, it came up in my surgeries on a regular basis in one form <laughs> or another before people moved on to their, their, their difficult issues that they'd come to see me about. So, yes, adored refereeing, yeah. very, very happy and doing the it. the last few months for the home nations, 
rugby union's been going quite well, hasn't it? It has. It has. And all credit to the Irish, yeah. uh, who have done yeah, phenomenally well, well down, in, down in New Zealand. Um, but yes, uh, rugby's, it's got its problems uh, in all sorts of different well, ways. There's not, every sport. But there's not enough access to rugby, is there? No. Um, it's some, something that concerns me a lot, that we draw from a certain social strata in large parts of the country, where I was an MP in Bristol, as I just said. Yeah. Everybody played rugby, yeah. go to Cornwall, go to Wales, yeah. those sorts of places. But in the south-east, it's very much a, it's, a public it's, school. It's private schools. Yeah. No, no, I know it is. Schools. I know it is. And we need, we need kids to be able to access yes. all sports. Yes. Now, I did mention your time as chief executive of the Beer and Pub Association. You did it for almost a decade. I, I did. Mean, gosh, when you heard that interview... With, with Simon a moment ago, it's pretty worrying, isn't it? It is very worrying. Pubs have, have morphed in one form or another. We've, got, we've lost the wet lead pub, yeah. the ones that do, couldn't serve food that would be right round the corner from here um, because society changed, people were drinking at home. So we lost a lot of those pubs. But the last few years... Covid followed by this energy crisis, really major, major problems. Yeah, no, it's, I've got to tell you, it certainly worries me. It really, really does. Now to politics, which you're well known for. So you clearly, you know, got involved with politics. Was it was it school time, university? When did you? For, I mean, when did you become a conservative? Uh, Fourteen. Right. When I was an argumentative bastard, and there was a, a, liber <laughs> a liberal in my class at school, so I had to become something. I don't come from a strongly politically family. My grandfather was deputy editor of the Daily Herald, the Labour Party okay. newspaper. Yeah. So, um, <coughs> excuse me. Bless you. And my niece was, uh, in the, a decade ago, was Labour leader of Camden Council. So I come from a, a politically varied family. Uh, but, yeah, I joined at the age of 14. Um, I've often asked myself, if that classmate had been a Conservative, would I have been a Liberal and would I have changed or whatever? <laughs> but, uh, yes, worked my way through the Tory party in one form or another. Actually didn't really expect myself to become an MP. But I expected they... to work through industry and, and do but, the voluntary but side. there you were. I mean, you know, 83 to 92, you're there in Parliament, you see Mrs Thatcher go to the absolute peak yep. of her powers um, after some very difficult early years, a British economy that, when I was working in the city, I mean, it was the most extraordinary atmosphere. Yes. It wasn't quite the same in South Yorkshire, and I understand. <laughs> no, well, I fully understand mm. that. It must have been quite exciting and quite optimistic to be an MP during that time. <coughs> it was. It there were peaks and troughs. One's got to remember that I was elected in 83 and in 85, the Conservatives had disastrous years at local elections, the same came back in 87. It was a fascinating mm. period. Mm. But anybody who's in the House of Commons, it's fascinating anyway, whatever period you're there for. And I look back not just at the Tories, but I look back at somebody like Robin Cook, John Reid, all these sorts of people who were great politicians mm. uh, on the other side. And so, yes, it was a fascinating period. In oh, all sorts and of there was ways. reasonable mutual respect <coughs> between the sides in those days. There was. There was a deep antipathy towards Mrs Thatcher, particularly in places like Scotland and, as you say, yeah. South Yorkshire, yeah. Coal Strike and all those sorts of things. The thing that was different about her period was that she had this vision of privatisation. Uh, in a way that no other government, Conservative, had kind of really decided to carry through things through. Now, many of the Cabinet ministers didn't know how things would result, 
because you were privatising companies like British Telecoms, mm. British Airways, mm. Rolls-Royce and all these sorts British of things. British Gas, all of it, yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, there was a vision that she clearly had and was determined to drive through, which made it somewhat different. Conviction politics. Absolutely. Not been, not been much of that lately in the Tory party, has there? Um, depends what you mean by convictions. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, Boris has messed it up big time, hasn't he? He has, and he's always going to, because I always took the view that he would fall because of malfeasance. Not Most prime ministers fail because of policy issues, failure to carry something through, pursuing something, as Mr Thatcher did with the poll tax, which just was untenable. Mm. Whereas Boris's problem was he has this amazing appeal to a large part yeah. of the population, and still does, and still does. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time doesn't understand the other people, uh, the middle class, uh, Tory entrepreneur, uh, remaining vote, um, who he lost in droves, and what was significant immediately after he announced his resignation was that the Tories went up in the polls quite mm. markedly, as clearly some of those people came yeah, back. Yeah, no, it's it's it's. It, I just think the whole thing's a waste. You know, big majority. They haven't done. I know the pandemic came. They haven't done much with it. But Robert, what you're best known for isn't being an MP, <laughs> and what you're best known for isn't being a member of the House of Lords. What you're best known for is being a pollster. Now, this is a much maligned industry, and with good reason, many of us think. But you actually, back in 92, big surprise result for yeah. most, but you identified what became known as the shy Tory, a phenomenon that we saw coming up with the Brexit referendum, Donald Trump yeah. in America. But it's on Brexit that I just have to take my hat off to you. You were out there, loud, clear. You thought Leave was going to win when very, very few in your industry did. How is it you got it right and they got it wrong? I think I've, I've discussed this with journalists over the years. Uh, they were providing me, ironically enough, with much of the information. As well as talking to my friends uh, and taking statistical terms, uh, I was looking for people who were deviant, i.e. there were certain groups who should be Remainers and certain groups who were, cert who were supposed to be Leavers. And all the deviants were people who should have been Remainers who were telling me they were going to vote Leave, <laughs> i.e. middle-class women, bankers, people like that. Mm. And, they, and the, those were groups who were... I find no parallel move in the opposite direction. But journalists would say, we've been to Gloucester, we've been to Nottingham today, we could doing Vox Pops, and we couldn't find a Remainer. <laughs> and yet they weren't hearing that message. Because they didn't want to. Um, possibly. But in part, you expect a certain response. Uh, and you think you discount it. Now, I didn't. I was uh, sadly back at, at home looking at statistics and thinking, this is what I'm hearing from mm. my friends, from conversation. This is what journalists are saying to me in day-by-day -day conversation. And I put it together and said, and yes, you're right, about two and a half weeks out, I said, unless things change dramatically... Yeah, no, good for you. They, 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 ..it would be a leave vote. Good for you. Well, having got so many things right, I have to put the pressure on you as we look ahead, of course. Well, I mean, you know, nearly half of those who were attracted by the Conservative Party, in some cases for the yep. first time, and I know those voters because yep. they were UKIPers sure. and all the rest of it, nearly half of them at the minute have deserted the Conservative Party. Is it likely 
they can get those voters back. And, and in that context, given all your long years, and you've seen Conservative Party ups yep. and downs and splits and enmities and <laughs> triumphs and failures and all of it. And Liz Truss, you know, she's been in the Cabinet for eight years, but the general public barely knew who she was. Yep. She, she hardly troubled the scorer in cricketing yep. terms with the general public. Yep. What advice would you give her, and is it possible for her to turn this around? It's going to be very difficult indeed for her to turn it round. We've lost two groups. I, one is the the leavers who came from South Yorkshire or the mm. North East side, and on mm. the other side, the middle classes from Wimbledon and Wandsworth. If there's one piece of advice I would say to Liz Truss, in terms of forming her cabinet, at the moment, all the stories are that she's going to put her mates in every single position. Mm. She's got to start by reuniting the Tory party over there in Westminster. And to do that, you have to appoint a number of Rishi supporters to serious cabinet positions. Because a split's are real. A split is real. Um, you've got to start within your own parliamentary party and then work outwards. But if you fail within the parliamentary party, you're going to fail completely. Robert Hayward, thank you for joining me on Talking Pints. Thank you. And he only used one bad word. We'll forgive him for that. <laughs> thank you. It's just before eight o'clock. Fine, oh, thank you. Okay, it's time now, the last couple of minutes, for me to do Barrage the Farage. Here we go. Ryan asks, is it time to deploy the army to restore basic order to the streets of London? I tell you what, calling in the army is pretty much a last resort. There are times when you might want to do it. There are times, though, when if you did do it, it would be seen to be highly, highly provocative. That's a card that you would play in a real, real emergency. What might be better is to get some more police back on the streets of London. But as we heard earlier on the show, so many young people now have no respect for the police, have no respect for society. I, I, it's easy to blame the police, and perhaps I do, but I think, I believe, the bigger problem that we've got is societal breakdown. And we can discuss the causes of that at length over the next few months. Mick asks me, do you think many people now prefer furlough as a way of life? Well, I tell you what, Mick, they love work from home. Fantastic. Nearly all of Whitehall seem to like work from home. And there are private companies adopting work from home. Uh, you know, many firms operating in London and big cities for just three days a week with people in the office. I am certain, whatever guff you're told, that means productivity goes down. There are distractions at home. You know, the dog's ill, the postman rings, there's a parcel being delivered. You may not be feeling too good, oh, I'll start work a little bit later today. And I just believe that human beings being, being together, bouncing ideas off each other, I think that actually generates fresh new thinking and is very, very important. So, yes, a lot of people are preferring that way of life. But it can't go on. It doesn't work. Mary asks, has Boris Johnson sunk the Tories forever? Well, as Lord Hayward was just saying, you know, there are those that remain fiercely loyal to Boris Johnson, but he's just, he, he just lost too many of those who'd voted Conservative in 2019. Um... Mary, I think they're headed for a 1997-style wipeout 
unless Truss can really pull some rabbits out of the hat. And to do that, she's going to need to display the most extraordinary courage. Has she got it within her? I doubt it, but I hope for the sake of the country that I'm proved wrong. And lastly, can the tide of woke be pushed back, Bobby asks. Yes, of course it can. All through our history, pendulums swing back and forth on social trends. And I think with trans in sport, already we're beginning to see that pendulum swing back. However, we have to keep fighting. If we don't, the other lot will win.